Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for TWIP is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com and Audible dot com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP. And Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. iStock Photo makes some changes. A photographer learns how Groupon can easily be mob-on. And architectural photographer Jeffrey Totaro joins us. It's Saturday, September 18th, 2010. And this is Twill. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. And joining me today on the show are Mr. Sil Arena and Jeffrey Totaro. Jeffrey, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, you got it exactly right. Totaro, yeah. perfect. Because you know what? There's a, there's a, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but there's a Japanese character that, that has a name similar to yours. Are you familiar with Totoro? Yes, I, I yeah, I haven't heard that for a while, but yeah, I remember when it first came out, someone pointed that out to me. Yeah, 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 so that's uh that's what I want to say when I see your name, but um <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. I'm saying it to Taro. So welcome to the show. You are a new uh this is your first time on this week in photo. Uh so thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've been listening to the show for for a long time. I was tune in every week just to see what's going on. And it's a great way for me to keep up with uh, with a lot of the, the the new things that come out in the photo world. Wonderful. So yeah, thanks. And you are an architectural photographer, which we're going to get into in a second. So that's uh, that's definitely a topic, an area that we definitely need to sort of talk about and and get into that level of photography beyond just the DSLR stuff that we talk about from time to time or all mm-hmm. the time. Right. Uh, and also on the show is a familiar voice, Mr. Sil Arena, who has been on the show before and is now back. Hey, Sil. Hey, Frederick. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I heard you had a little drama in your life. Um, I did. I did. You, are you, uh, you, basically, you're driving your body like you're 16? Is that what's <laughs> going on? I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely in denial about my age. Um, but I woke up one morning in early August and had a lightning bolt of pain go down my right leg from my butt to my right foot. Mm-mm. And um, long story short... Um, Herniated disc, which is something that all photographers need to be careful about. And uh, I just frankly had overworked myself working on Speedlighter's handbook seven days a week for a couple months straight. And uh, it was kind of like the perfect storm. So long story short, I I did not take care of myself as I should have. Um, And I went to see a pain doctor and neurologist, neurosurgeon, all that stuff. So good news is is, uh, through uh, the right medication, the inflammation was taken care of. But it took three and a half weeks to figure that out. And um, so I'm back in the game. I've been back at work for two full weeks now. So cool. is this so? What can what can other photographers learn from what happened to you? Was it was it the way you were carrying your gear, or were you carrying too much gear, or or what? <laughs> um, you know, it 
I literally, I stepped out of bed one morning, took one step, and that's when apparently, you know, the herniation hit the nerve root of the sciatic nerve and the pain started. Mm-hmm. Um, the herniation had happened at some point before, but it never, you know, I mean, I swear there was one day where I was lifting a light stand bag and I heard a squish in my back, but I think I made that up. I don't know. Um, but the bottom line is, yeah, we photographers have to be really, really careful. I mean, you know, we carry a lot of gear around. Um, we put ourselves in these precarious positions just to get the right angle. Um, if you're using light stands, you're reaching above your head, you know, incorrectly. And yeah, we just have to take care of ourselves. And um, the thing truly that's made a huge difference to me is stretching. There are some really simple stretches you can do to keep your butt and your lower back really loose. And it's and, and that's largely ground zero for me is if I, t- if I tighten up from sitting at my desk too long or whatever, you know, then all of a sudden it's like I can feel those tinges of leg pain coming back, yeah. even though yeah, it's a back it's, issue. So you bring up a good point because I, I, we carry a lot of equipment around. And, and what first got me going to the gym many years ago was uh, a pain in my shoulder from lifting all this stuff. And, that's, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a, a real wake-up call. You do, you do have to you know, keep after your, your fitness level at least so you can pick stuff up and not hurt your back and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, still. I think I I feel a blog post from you coming on from your, you know, your speedlighting.net site where you just talk about how photographers can avoid having what happened to you happen to them doing stretching or something. I haven't seen anything like that. Maybe there is, but I haven't seen anything that just sort of talks about the the inherent health risks of being a photographer. It used to be all the chemicals, but now those are are gone. (laughs) Now those are gone. Now we're just, you know, muscle injury and spinal cord disasters, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm thinking about um, just going straight to DVD with it, being the Richard Simmons of the photographer's exercise community. You totally should. That's a niche. You should totally serve that niche. You you, got to specialize. Um, (laughs) No, seriously, it'll it'll go up. um, it's, It's the blog... The blog piece is in development. It'll go up on Pixelated rather than um, Speedlighting.com because it's Pixelated's hat, which I haven't worked on for a while. But it still has a pretty wide readership. And, um, yeah, it's it doesn't matter whether you like small flash or not, man. If you carry too much gear the wrong way, you'll get hit. But let me tell you that, seriously. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I was sh- doing a shoot this morning with just two speed lights to light some interiors. And I thought, man, I am so glad I didn't bring my big C stands, my mono lights, and my sandbags. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely thinking about how to travel light and how to work fast these days. Yeah, I think well, I, have, I, have a feeling, I have a feeling you're going to be frequenting the Strobus website a lot more. <laughs> That'll hit home. You know? I'll, have to, I'll have to use an alias, though, for David to let me back on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just before we continue, you, you, you're going to write, you're going to put this on your your pixelated website and people can just google your name s-y-l sill arena right right to, to get to that so yeah okay cool all right uh guys we're going to take a quick second to uh, give a nod to our sponsor audible we're brought to you by audible.com they're the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than seventy-five thousand downloadable titles across all types of literature featuring audio versions of many new york times bestsellers and for listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out the service and, you know, see if you actually like this stuff. Um, and I think you will. So um, I'm listening to all manner of audiobooks. Right now, I'm listening to, I've been on, like, as I mentioned on the show before, I've been on this sort of 
internet marketing bent for the last, I don't know, two years, just learning, learning all the ins and outs of internet marketing and social media, all that stuff. Because I am a marketer by trade and a photographer by trade, but uh, on the marketing side of my brain, it's just... You know, it's one of the things that's really interesting how humans behave online and the patterns in the chaos and that sort of thing. So one of the books that I'm, I'm reading actually for the second time now is called, wait for it, Kaching. That's K-I-C-H-I-N-G. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you should be able to find it really easily. Just search for Kaching. I think it's even spelled with an exclamation point. And uh, it's interesting because he goes through the whole like all there's 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 a finite number of different techniques online for marketing and and revenue generation, whether it be email or membership sites or social media, et cetera, et cetera. And my brain sort of gravitates towards how do those things relate to the photographer that is an artist trying to get his word to get the get the word out about himself and his his art. So it's uh it's really interesting. It's a really interesting read. I would definitely recommend it. Now Jeffrey, you're you're also an an mm-hmm. audible person. What do you have you been listening to anything interesting lately? Yeah, I do. And most of my listening I find uh, I do in the car because, and I have to be driving because if I if I'm listening on a plane or if I'm a passenger in a car, um, I, I tend to fall asleep and then I don't know where I was. So <laughs> I uh, I sometimes torture my assistants uh, through through some books on on long drives. Um, but I've got two. I have um, one is a David McCullough uh, book. He's known for all his uh, history books, and this one is called The Great Bridge, and it's about um, the design and construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, which I love because I have a, a, um, a background in architecture and, and engineering. So I was very interested to read the book from the sort of from a technical point of view. But, but he goes into some really great detail and keeps the reader very balanced between the construction techniques and also the politics and the social things going on at the time. Uh, and just walks you through the whole construction because it's um, uh, even you know what what we know. I'm not, I'm not a diver, but uh, what's interesting about you find out in this book is that um, the phenomenon known as the bends that uh, divers are familiar with from surfacing too quickly yeah. actually was first was first uh, realized as a as a medical condition during the construction of the of the Brooklyn Bridge because oh. uh, there were guys actually working at depth underwater in these uh, chambers in different different conditions and so it, it was great from from that perspective and uh, so it just just walks you through the whole thing and if I get add a um, uh, a second book. This is another uh, historical book, and this one is written by uh, T.J. English. And this is a book called Havana Nocturne, which is um, mm. a fascinating story about um, how the mob uh, owned Cuba and Havana, and then how they lost it to the revolution of, of Castro. And just walks you through the whole the whole story. And it's just fascinating how how the mob really took over with the casinos and. How uh, you know Batista and, and how his rise and fall and rise and fall again. And an interesting tidbit out of that book is uh, Batista was in in exile, and you know usually you hear exile, you think, well, he must be like really hiding somewhere. Well, he was hiding at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. And uh, <laughs> see, that's that's how I would do it if I had to be exiled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was uh, it was a great uh, read or, or listen, if you will, um, uh, just about that history and. Uh, yeah, really, really sparked an interest. I'd love to go go down to Cuba. Certainly, things are, are different there these days in some sense. Um, but it was uh, it, it was a great book. I really enjoyed it. that. Was a uh, that one we listened to primarily about half of it on a like a five hour ride back from West Virginia. So. Wonderful, <laughs> good picks, very good picks, Mister Arena. Do you have any uh, anything you're listening to right now while you're Just... nursing nursing your backpack to health? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... 
just started, just started, but I, th- I think this one's got potential. It's called The Mercury Visions of Louis Daguerre, and it's actually, uh, you know, a kind of a bio novel um, set back at literally the birth of photography in Paris in 1839. And for those who don't know, I go back a long ways in photography. I didn't know Daguerre personally, but um, the daguerreotype is a process that involves the use of mercury vapor on silver-plated um, metal plates. And mercury, of course, being incredibly toxic. So the book is set around Daguerre's, um, again, this is all fictional, but it's set around the fact that Daguerre inhaled too much mercury. Mm. And 10 years after he invented the daguerreotype, he's convinced that the world is going to end in a year. And so he comes up with the doomsday list, 10 things that he has to photograph before the world ends in one year's time. So I think it's going to be a pretty good re- listen. That sounds great. Wow, that's great. I'm going to definitely – there's three books. So that's like, I don't know what, 10, 13 hours out of my life that you guys yeah, just that's took a lot of, Thank you. That's a lot of, that's a lot of gas money. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. All right. Uh, and before, before we jump into the show proper, I definitely want to uh, – or actually, before we move on to that, I want to let – Listeners know that if they want to get the a free one of these three books or four books or whatever, they can head over to audiblepodcast.com forward slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP to download their free audiobook. All right, before we jump into the show, into the news and all that stuff, I uh, wanted to take some time to, to Jeffrey to chat with you about. Um, again, first, thank you for coming on the show. You're, uh, you know, brand new to This Week in Photo. Hopefully, you'll come on again in the future. Yeah, um, I'd love to. But also, uh, you are an architectural photographer of the highest caliber. You know, where Syl and I were, were going through the stuff on your website before we dialed you in and were, were, uh, humbled by your, you know, your, uh, knowledge of light and exposure and composition and, you know, and then it goes deeper as we got you on the line and started talking to you yeah. about your you're not using DSLRs to create this work and all this magic stuff. So can you give us a quick, you know, just sort of introduction to who you are and, uh, how you became a photographer. Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, really uh, do enjoy listening to your show, and thanks for your very kind words. Um, I actually started um, my professional career as an architect and structural engineer. I have a degree in architectural engineering from Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I worked um, – Drexel as a co-op program. I did some co-op uh, back and forth at the same firm over three years and then worked for this, other, for this firm in Philadelphia for five years after I graduated. And – doing a lot of architecture and healthcare work and, and uh, some structural engineering for the last two years. But what um, I got more and more interested in photography, which had started as, a, as an interest back in high school. And But about uh, two years, I guess, after I graduated from college, I, I discovered the 4x5 camera. Um, and that's really what, what really got my interest sparked in photography in general, but also, also in architectural photography specifically. And I pretty much taught myself uh, how, to, how to use the 4x5 camera and you know, read some books and knew a few people who used them. Yep. And so I decided I wanted to you know, make this more of a career path. And so I got to know some of the photographers that were working, uh, working you know, taking photo, professional photos for the office I was working for. So I sort of, sort of bullied my way into their lives a little bit. And um, had a great opportunity to work. Um, got a, got a, a job offer from from one of these photographers, and uh, so I ended up working with him as a studio manager and first assistant for for three or four years as a full time thing. And then transitioned into shooting my own work. Um, it definitely helped that I was in the architectural business 
uh, ahead of time, it was actually a really good path to take because I knew certainly knew a lot of people and just having the vocabulary and understanding uh, architecture and design uh, is, is, a, is a really huge help uh, you know, in terms of photographing architecture. Yeah. But um, a little bit about what, what I do as a photographer, um, some people aren't, aren't real clear about it, but most of my clients are architects and we're photographing their finished, mostly their finished projects, uh, and they use them use the photos primarily, obviously, for their website and promotional things. But another thing architects do a lot with these photos is there are a number of design awards out there. And these awards range from, you know, best office design things, uh, but they could be in, you know, different categories of square footage, could be an academic award, uh, could be a material award, like uh, there's a, a um, literally a brick award, brick in architecture. So there, there are a huge number of awards and all this new green design, environmentally conscious design has led to even more awards. So that's really um, what happens a lot. We're often under deadlines to get things photographed so they can submit them to awards and, and uh, so that's that's mostly most of my clients are architects. Certainly, some engineers just did a shoot this week for a structural engineering company in Philadelphia, which was fun. Yeah, and um, and we do shoots also a lot of times the contractors are involved. And I say mostly we shoot finished stuff. There's sometimes when we shoot things under construction. Yeah, or, I, I saw one of one of the photos on your website. It looked like something was under deconstruction. You know, where it was I don't know if it was there was broken glass in the ground and that sort of thing. Was that like a a site that was being Ready was that for, under the gallery, maybe? I think it was under gallery, yeah. Yeah, that might have been this um, this great old power plant. I'm thinking that's what it might be. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so th- there are lots of um, lots of uh, you know variety of building types that we shoot. Uh, could be you know, anything from residential, commercial, industrial, uh, basically anything that, that an architect would design. Wow. And um, you know, one one of the other things that, uh, as you were talking, that that sort of sparked a, a light bulb in my head was when I when I I was in the, you know as most of the listeners know or many of the listeners know that um, I was in the military as a photographer way back in the day, and mm-hmm. l- when I was learning photography at the beginning, we had to do everything from you know uh, sports to investigative to forensic to all this all these different disciplines in photography and one of the one day a week the photographers had to rotate through studio duty where we do portraits of officers and you know they're basically you know set them on a chair on the x and the lighting was set and rembrandt and click and get the shot but the 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 camera that we were uh that we had to use uh by the rules was a 4 by 5 camera mm. You know, right. so we had to shoot these. I mean, and these were these portraits were only going to be blown up to eight by ten at the max. So we were shooting four by four, and the reason the reason that we had to shoot the four by five images was so that we could retouch the negatives because we had to re. This was before oh, okay. this was yeah. before Photoshop, right? So we had to retouch the negatives with the little, you know, the little dyes on the on the negatives themselves. So we needed that big negative so that we could retouch them before we printed them and then spot the prints. You know, so yeah, that's that's certainly old school. And then shooting portraits with with four by five is is almost pure torture. It is uh, in terms of focus. You <laughs> Tell know, me I about mean, it. <laughs> did, you, did you have the whole string line thing set up to the? Absolutely, nose? we did. Yeah, yeah. We did. We had the. We had it. Uh, you know the. We had the. The officers tilted, you know, their shoulders were, were kind of angled towards the camera, but we had to get all of their, their rank and, and name and all that stuff had to be in focus. So we had to put the plane of focus with, you know, in alignment with their, uh, with their shoulders and then have their head facing forward. So we needed enough, enough, enough depth of field so that not only was there the front of their body in focus, but their, you know, of course, the eyes and nose and all the facial features yeah. had to be in focus as well. So you had a Schleimflugum. Yeah. <laughs> 
was crazy. You know, in retrospect, I'm thinking, we went through all that for a portrait? Come on, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, these days it's a, a little bit quicker, you know, yeah. at least in terms of the camera setup. Yeah. So so speaking of cameras, so now you're shooting with a medium format, correct? And how how is that going? I was saying, I was saying before we clicked record, you are one of the few photographers that I know that uh, – shoot with anything other than a digital SLR. So I, I would love to know what that experience is, how much, it, you know, how much it set you back. Can any photographer jump in and what are the, what are the negatives? Sure. Well, um, again, it, it, it all started for me with the four by five and we worked a number of years with, with film and I just like that process. You know, you get, you get what I'll call proper, um, or at least in camera perspective control with the four by five cameras. You can, you know, raise the lens, drop the lens, shift the back left and right. Uh, and these are things you can't do with uh, with an SLR of any kind. But th- certainly there are t- the tilt shift lenses, and I'll talk about those in a moment. But um, so when I was transitioning to digital, I originally uh, you know I wanted to stay with the four x five idea in terms of a, a proper perspective control camera, uh, where where every lens in your kit is a perspective control lens rather than just whatever Nikon or Canon tell you they are. So. I initially um, got into a, a smaller, what, what would be called a, a medium format view camera, which was a 6 by 9 camera made by Arca Swiss, and they make beautiful view cameras. And this was the same old kind of bellows focusing setup, and that um, that was real torture to focus on digital because um, re- re- you had like what we call like a sliding back adapter where you can put the digital back on the camera and you can actually slide it out of view, and in, in its place comes a ground glass, mm-hmm. uh, so you can do your composition and focusing. But given the fact that you're working with a much smaller piece of ground glass than you were with four by five, it was very hard to get it focused, and you're you're shooting tethered to the computer all the time, so there's a lot of back and forth trying to get the camera exactly focused because you're really just working with bellows and you're trying to tweak it back a millimeter here, a millimeter there. Yeah. So I worked with that for about a year. And that was with the phase one uh, P45, uh, excuse me, the P25 digital back, which is a 22 megapixel Kodak chip. I'll talk a little bit more about the, the backs in a second. But then, um, so just a quick progression of cameras. I, I then found these other camera systems where they don't have a bellows and all the focusing is done in what they will call a helical mount. They're view camera lenses, uh, but they're installed in the mount that you would focus very, very much the way you would focus an SLR lens. Uh, it has a rotating barrel and the lens moves back and forth to focus it. But these, um, they have you know a distance scale, and so really it, it sounds kind of silly. Uh, really, your, your focus is done pretty much by you know a guesstimate of your distance, mm-hmm. and you you get to know each lens pretty well. Like I can set my thirty six millimeter lens to right between five meters and infinity, and I know that you know for most interiors, that's going to be just about right. Uh, but then again, we do check it on the computer just to make sure the focus is is right where we need it. So this became a much faster way to shoot in terms of focusing. Um, but then again, we still get we still get all the proper perspective control. I work with now with a system by a, a great Swiss company called Alpa A L P A, and their website is alpa.ch. And anyone interested can look at their cameras there. And I use two of their cameras. One's called the uh, Twelve Max, and this one gives you uh, rise and fall on the lens in the front, so you can you can raise and lower the lens, and that's how we as architectural photographers maintain. Um, you know, perspective control where the camera's not tilted upward, where you might get some keystoning effects of your vertical lines. And so you can have the, the rise and fall, what we call it, on the front with the lens. And then you can also shift the digital back left and right on the rear of the camera. Because mm. sometimes we'll want to, you know, we want what we call like a one point perspective shot where we're looking squarely at a wall. We're not, there's no perspective left or right. And then, but maybe you want to see a little bit more to the left, you know, in the shot. So then you can, you can actually shift the back left and right. 
um, leaving the lens leaving the lens still. So all these these various perspective controls, and again with the five lenses I have in this system, is is really great, very flexible. And I can see, I guess it was my training in 4x5, I really like to see exactly what I'm getting on location. You know, I'm looking at one photo on my website here, and I remember, yeah, we really talked about just showing just that one, one little corner of that rug right in the, right on the edge of the photo. Yeah. And that, um, yeah, you could certainly do that with a, with a 35-millimeter camera, but there are a lot of other things that happen in post-production with the DSLR in terms of perspective control and distortion control and, and things like that that might prevent you from really studying the edges of the photos on site unless you really take the time to process them out and tweak them and things like that. So, so the, the images or the files that you're producing, I'm assuming you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're dealing with raw files, correct? Yep. Yeah, the camera, the digital back only shoots raw files. Okay, only shoots raw files. So then what, do you, what are you importing into? Are you using Aperture, just f- Bridge and Photoshop or Lightroom? Well, that's a good question. Um, phase one, uh, and I guess some of the other, uh, Leaf uh, and some of the other manufacturers, they all have their own proprietary software. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Phase one has uh, Capture One Pro, right. which... Um, which is really very flexible because it'll process the files for the Phase One cameras, and it'll also process you know, Nikon and Canon, and I also use a Leica, and it'll process those files too. So I, I can have all all of my raw processing done in one piece of software, and it works it works extremely well. the The thing that keeps you tied to their software, like the reason I don't use uh, Lightroom or, or Aperture, is that the the Kodak chip that's in these digital backs uh, produces sort of a, ne- a negative effect that's called uh, lens cast. And this is this will show up as a weird color cast across the photo. And it changes every time, like if you were to raise the lens 5 or 10 millimeters uh, from the zero position, uh, you would see a different color cast than if you were to drop the lens by 5 mil- millimeters. And what we have to do is shoot a calibration file. Uh, if you're familiar, you guys familiar with the Expo Disc? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I, which is like a, a white balance tool for most people. But what I use it for is I'll, I'll put that over the lens. I just have one really big one that fits over all the lenses. Um, just hang it off the lens, and we'll shoot one exposure with that and get a nice medium gray file. Mm-hmm. And then in the software, there's a tool. The, the software knows that you're shooting a, a phase phase one file, and so that, that tool will light up. And you just tell the software to analyze that gray file, and then you just uh, gives it a name, and you then just apply it to the actual pictures, and it cleans up this color cast. But... Um, there's no other way to correct it. There's no other software package that will correct that particular issue. And that's, again, that's called lens cast calibration, and it's a byproduct of the Kodak CCD chip. Um, that's another thing I should mention. These are CCD chips in this camera, and not, um, you know, a lot of guys are using, uh, like Canon for sure uses the, the CMOS chip, um, yep. you know, which works very well. Um, but the, uh, um, you know, there's, I guess there's there's differences in power in terms of the size of this chip and and you know power usage and that kind of thing that they have to think about. Yeah. And um, no, also, go ahead. No, I was I was just, I was sorry to interrupt. I was going to say you know Silarina is the the master of you know the the digital SLR and and mm-hmm. small strobes and that sort of lighting. So I, this is why it's sort of magical to have you both in the show because Jeffrey, you're talking about this. You know what I'm seeing in my head is this. You know, a a set of this, you know, a beautiful, beautiful building or interior that you're lighting meticulously and you've got your medium or large format camera there wired up to a computer and you've got assistants running around moving things. And it's that sort of 
grand sort of design and then on the on the other side we've got sill who is more like a ninja who can go sill you drop out of a plane with a backpack full of strobes and he's going to roll in there and, and set up and, and get the shot and then he's out of there before they even know that he was there kind of thing so, i know where yeah. you're going i read your post about di- skydiving with the knights so. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> it's still the, in my head <laughs> you want the portrait next time you free fall totally totally and, so I was gonna. So the the point is. So Sill, on your side, you know, hearing all this, how does this how does this change your perception of of kind of less is more? And would you looking at Jeffrey's site and some of the the magical things that he shot over there? Do you think that it's possible to get close to representing that kind of photography using the things that most of the Twip listeners have in their bag, which is strobes and you know the digital SLR? Well. Yeah, uh, you know, I'll say yes and no. I'll argue both sides of it. Um, you know, Jeffrey's shooting f- for award-winning architects, and that puts him into a very, very high-end situation. Um, and I don't think you could shoot for those clients who are literally licensing or commissioning these photos so that they can get future work. Um, those, those photos have a huge value and a huge importance to them. You know, I just came back an hour before the podcast from photographing a home in, a, in the midst of a vineyard here in Paso Robles. And it's a home that's going up for sale. Um, and fortunately for me, it was a foggy morning. Um, and this house has a vineyard that literally like goes right up to the windows. And the owner said it's really important that we be able to see the vineyard through the windows. And I just got lucky when the fog showed up. Um, you know, so I shot it with my Canon 5D Mark II, a 1740 uh, zoom lens, and two speed lights and a tripod. So are the images that I made of the quality of the, of the images that Jeffrey makes? Heck no. But are the images that I crafted and were the speed lights up to the requirement of balancing the interior light to the exterior light? so that this home could go up on an MLS site? Yeah, these are absolutely great shots. So the answer to your question is yes and no. It really just depends upon what your target is. Um, If you're shooting for Architectural Digest, I don't think you're going to get it done with speed lights. And yeah. nor should you think that way, right? But and that's what know. I was getting at. That's that. That's sort of the, I think the takeaway for a lot of folks is, you know, that these are tools. And I think at the core of of everything that we do as photographers is it all. It's all just light composition, exposure, all that stuff. And the the tools that we're using on top of that, whether they be medium format and tethering to a computer, and you know, with the assistance and all that stuff, or on the left of being dropped out of a plane and barrel rolling into a situation and setting up your lights and getting the shot you're still capturing light you know you're still capturing light to so it's important to understand the fundamentals of all this stuff and then layer on top of it the complexity for the task at hand whether it be architectural photography or getting a shot of a vineyard kind of thing right yeah i would i would say um that, that's very true it all comes down to, to just having the, the eye and, and the understanding of the light and actually you know so i'm actually very interested in, in learning more about working with 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 the smaller strobes uh you know for a number of reasons there, there are times when we have to you know work a little more uh stealthily i'll say if that's a word mm-hmm. um in other words like we, we can't bring a, a, as big a production in uh to to a particular location because they don't want a lot of light stands around or, or whatever the case may be and also when when traveling you know we, we have lots of cases of lights and it's getting more and more expensive to travel so it, that's certainly a, a an option that I, i'm going to start looking into there's a um, a seminar at the upcoming photo expo in, in new york in october I, f- I forgot who's giving it but um 
that so I, I might might attend that one. And I don't Probably. want to say that that architecture. There are plenty of guys. In fact, most guys who do what I do and who do it very well also um, do use uh, primarily Canon, but some use Nikon. They do use DSLRs and they get very good results with it. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that the decision I I decided to go because I liked working with a with a larger camera for a number of reasons and also a bit of a camera junkie. I like you know these lenses have a lot less distortion to, to worry about and some yeah. other technical things I can bore you with, but. Um, so that's, um, but I don't want people to feel like they can't shoot architecture with with, a, with an SLR because they certainly can. Some of the some of the best in the world, that's what they use. Now, Jeffrey, uh, on, on in terms of just overall technique, um, are you doing any HDR to sort of balance the interior and exterior, or, or how do you how do you get those? Because I've seen those, you know, I, maybe not your shots, but I've seen some of the the shots like yours that are just gorgeous. Uh, exterior shots of this home that I can't afford that has, you know, the lighting on the lawn that's just tack sharp and then interior, the lights are perfect and the the sky in the background is, you know, typically shot in magic hour so the sky has this beautiful saturation to it and everything is perfect. Now, are you, I know you can accomplish that using HDR, but is that is that how you're doing it? Or I, I, I'm waiting for HDR to work as well as I'd like it to. Um, in fact, Amen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see. Uh, uh, Nick is coming out with a with a new HDR program uh, in the fall. I'm very excited to see what that does. But I, I do what, what I call manual HDR, and that's that's with my Wacom tablet and cutting lots of paths and gotcha. Um, and so it, I find the HDR. I mean, it works well for certain things, and um, it's sort of a, an art form in, of its own. Uh, but I, I don't find it, it maintains, basically it just doesn't, for me, it doesn't maintain the, the, the density or the blacks uh, well enough to do it in a one-step process. I have experimented with it and let it get me like, you know, 50% of the way there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then uh, we go right back to the old techniques of just layering layering some pieces uh, together. So describe, what, describe that technique hmm? a little bit for folks who may not understand that manual HDR stuff. So you're, sure. you're shooting multiple images. Your camera's locked down on the tripod, obviously. And you're shooting ma- multiple images at different exposures for the different light sources. And then, then what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We, uh, we're almost always on a tripod, 99.9% of the time. And so that affords us the idea that you know, we can just shoot many, many different exposures. And, you know, have one that's the primary one. The thing that typically we're having to correct, like in a residence, for instance, is the, the bright windows. Uh, so often we're still adding light. Uh, you, can, you can sort of get away in a lot of times without adding light. But, but you know, I, I still light for, for effect and for color and for even light. Because sometimes you get, you know, light pouring in a window and it's maybe not quite the right color. Or it's a different color. Or it's too contaminated by the green trees or who knows what. Yeah. But so we'll shoot... Um, We'll shoot a, a variety of exposures, and it, it, it could be maybe just four exposures. That might get you enough uh, detail in the window. And then, so I'll process the files out uh, of Capture One. And, I, you know, you can certainly, since these are raw files, probably work with just one file if you really needed to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to push and pull it back and forth. But I tend to just shoot extra ones. So bring everything into Photoshop, process everything out of the 16-bit TIFFs. Which out of this camera are about 225 megabytes each. Wow! And yeah, <laughs> and 16-bit definitely helps when you're trying to push and pull the pixels, as far as we do with what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. And there's two two basic techniques we use. There's the real obvious sort of cutting a path in Photoshop using the pen tool and zooming into 200% and just carefully cutting a path around a window, uh, and then select use, using that and selecting that path and grabbing the window out of the darker exposure and then dropping it into the lighter exposure, uh, and you have to watch, you know, how much you feather that selection. You know, usually one or two pixels is enough. And there's a, a, another great technique that we use. Um, it's called a luminance selection in Photoshop, hmm. and it's um, 
I believe you used to have to customize your your keystrokes to get it, but on the Mac, it's Option Command and the number two. And what this will do, it'll it'll grab most of the highlights out of any any particular file you're looking at. So I would just hit again Option Command two, and then I would use um, it's Command J, but I guess it's it's new layer from selection. Mm-hmm. I guess is what it officially is. Yep. And so a lot of times, what that'll do, if you just need to bring down the highlights a little bit in certain areas, I'll, I'll grab one of those lumen selections from another file and, and drag it on. And of course they register almost perfectly uh, when you're dragging them on top from different files. Um, and then I'll just paint in with a brush, you know, just by hand, you know, no, 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 you know, lengthy process of cutting a path for some of this stuff. And then, so we'll just be able to bring down, bring down the intensity a little bit. Like another good example is like in an office building, a lot of times you have uh, these long fluorescent fixtures that might hang down from the ceiling. And what they're meant to do is they bounce light back up into the white ceiling so you often have this really bright white ceiling, and this technique is great because sometimes if you cut a path out of the whole ceiling, you find some parts of it go too dark. So you can really feather in a nice, um, a nice gradation from highlight to shadow with this um, luminance selection. Wow. And I, I learned this from a guy. I have a guy who um, who does this um, does some of my digital post production in in New York. His name is Chris Gray, and um, he does uh, some of the digital post work. I learned that from him. Um, like when I get real real busy sometimes in the summer and fall. Uh, I'll enlist uh, Chris's great skills because uh, he does this kind of work strictly for architectural photographers. So it's a very quick dialogue with him, uh, barely any to tell him what he needs to do. He knows how to bring in the windows. He knows how to how to adjust the color. He knows exactly what he needs to do for these files. Now, now Jeffrey, are you, uh, are you blogging anywhere? Because it sounds like this is – I've heard two or three different blog post topics that you could write on <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, 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 the blogging is definitely something I'm interested in doing, but I'm trying to think of – something else to do besides just plain old technical stuff because I yeah. think there are other people out there who do it. So I'm trying to think of, you know, we, we travel not extensively but a fair amount. So I was trying to think of doing something maybe related to travel or different places we go, sort of a, a, a less literal architectural photographer blog. So I keep keep considering it, but I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Very good. All right, guys, let's, uh, let's move on and jump into the news. We've got a couple of news stories that will be interesting to the, uh, to the TWIP listening audience. Uh, first up, iStock Photo um, apparently has, is angering contributors with their new royalty formula. So let me read this, uh, this excerpt from the article. It says, uh, Microstock, Microstock distributor and Getty subsidiary iStock Photo has announced plans to change its royalty structure to reward contributors who bring in the most revenue over the short term instead of rewarding contributors for accumulating downloads over time. The new system, which is designed to increase iStock uh, iStock's gross profits takes effect in January. So, uh, you know, I was trying to get Nicolzi on, uh, but she's she's a little bit tied up to to chat about this because she's a iStock contributor and this will definitely affect her. So maybe we'll try to get her on a subsequent show. But wanted to throw this out to you guys. I know you're both of you, I don't believe are contributing to iStock or, or penny stock type agencies, but in terms of you, I know you're both familiar with the ecosystem around that. So how do you think this is just a, a, a case of Getty and iStock needing to grow and get bigger and and show more profit or is this something else i'll throw it to you first so well no i don't shoot for iStock. um and i've stood on the sidelines for the last 10 years or so watching the whole stock photography industry change um you know really uh, and it's not just unique to photography i mean lots of lots of industries have changed by new technology coming on um 
So it's hard to say. I mean, I read a, a blog post by Don Giannatti at lightingessentials.com and I went over and I looked at some of the places he linked to largely um, because I was trying to procrastinate on something I was really supposed to do. So I read through tons of comments and, um, you know, the bottom line is uh, it, it sounds to me like anytime there's change, one, a whole lot of people are just going to get mad because there's change. Um, two, if you're an eye stalker, as I understand it, um, and you're a, a good performer, your paycheck actually goes up. And if you're one of those eye stalkers who's a weekend warrior who just throws lots of crap up on their site, then yeah, your paycheck is going to go down. And um, if that in fact is true, then maybe in fact it's really healthy for the eye stock community um, to have better photography. As to whether microstock is going to be an economically viable um, channel. I hate to say it, but yeah, I think it is because there's a whole lot of people who just need a photograph for a website or a blog post at three in the morning. And it's frankly too easy and dare I say too cheap to go out and download an image on the fly and get what you need so you can get your job done. And you don't really care whether photographers getting two cents or 200 bucks. You just want to get your job done at two in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And Jeffrey, how do you, how do you feel about that? Or first of all, are are you or have you ever shot for penny stock type uh, efforts? And if not, or regardless, what do you think about this this eye stock change in policy? Uh, no, I, ha- I haven't um, been a contributor to any any of the, the micro stock or penny stock uh, agencies. Um, it's you know when you when you think about I, maybe maybe if I understand what they're doing, I, th- I think mostly they're they're just trying to maybe um, sort of raise the bar in terms of weeding out maybe the, the the photographers that just jumped in thinking they could maybe sell their vacation pictures on iStock or something. Um, so if I understand what the what the issue is, but um, you know the royalty royalty free that's always been a, a, or even the, the penny stock idea has always been a, a, a sticky issue. Um, doesn't really affect my business too much because we're talking about you know things that are so specific. You know these are specific photographs of or specific projects that need to be photographed, and there aren't like a, a ton of them unless you're talking about some icon of a big city like a Empire State Building or something. So um, yeah, I'd be interested to, to to read more about about what what they're doing because I like to keep track of what's going on because I, I hate to see any anything in terms of you know that's going to infringe on people's copyright. Uh, rights and and their ability to sell photographs and and to to make a living at it because uh, there's a lot of downward pressure on pricing of course and there's also a lot of downward pressure on the whole idea of copyright absolutely um, when you look um, you know you look at towards like something like Creative Commons and a lot of these things you have to agree to if you post photographs on Facebook and Flickr and um, what really happens with with all of those things so I, I try to keep an eye on it but I, I'd like to read this story uh, in more detail just to understand what they're up to. Yeah, and in an upcoming uh, This Week in Photo, I'm going to try to get either Rich Leg um, or uh, Nicole Young, a.k.a. Nicole Z, on the show to see if we, uh, they can provide some insight into this because they are they, they both wave the flag for iStock, and I think this would affect them more than most other folks that we have on the show. So we'll try to get them on so they can give us their feedback in the interim. All right, uh, story number two. This is an interesting story. I saw this a couple of days ago. Uh, I don't know if you guys, you guys are both, are you familiar with the, the service Groupon? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so for, for those who don't know what Groupon is, it's a service where you can, you can sign up and um, essentially in your area, people will, or vendors or merchants will offer a 
promotion. Say it's a, I don't know, let's say it's a facial at some spa or something. And the, say the facial normally costs 150 bucks. Um, they will offer it to a limited group, say 50 people for 50 bucks or something around there. Um, but as long as the number of people that sign up for the Groupon promotion meets or exceeds a certain number. For example, they could set the number at 100. So if 100 people sign up for this thing, then all 100 people get it. If 99 only sign up for it, then the deal goes away. So that's the whole idea behind Groupon. Now, the how this relates to This Week in Photo is a photographer decided to, or and Groupon, because they're, it's kind of a partnership, decided to offer $65 or a $65 one-hour photo shoot and a DVD of the images plus an 8x10 print and 20% off additional prints. Um, and this photographer was Dana Dawes Photography. So this was, in, in quotes, up to a $500 value. And uh, the the issue was, as I read through the thread, and we'll link to the thread on, on in the post for this this show. Issue was she was promoting a first of all, people pointed out accurately that there was no way that this person could have done that many portrait sessions in a year. You know, just it, just math just didn't work out in this. B when you go to the, when you went to the site, which is now gone, I believe, or at least has been radically changed, um, the photos that this person had on the site were not even her own. So these were other mm-hmm. photographers that were. She's basically saying, "Hey, you know, I can shoot your your portrait and look at uh, look at Jeffrey Totaro's <laughs> image to as proof that I can shoot your image." You know, so she was. She had actually stolen the images. She or had she was- stolen the images and yeah. and put them on her site and then used a Groupon engine to drive. I think she. Had sold over 1200 of these packages at $6,500 each. Um, and, uh, and one of the TWIP listeners, John, John Cachero of John Cachero Photography, was one of the people that, that brought this to our attention. But, uh, you know, it's just insane. So I wanted to, A, talk to you guys specifically about you know, there's there's two facets here. There's the first, the facet of photographers using services like Groupon, you know, to to kind of mass market their work and is that the right thing to do um and then b just the plain theft of images <laughs> and have you had any of your images stolen so uh jeffrey i'll throw it to you first mm-hmm. so on the you know on the first piece of that you know using services like groupon to sort of mass market low-end i don't want to say low-end photography but you know bargain 65 dollars for a one-hour photo shoot is a bargain with an 8 by 10 and the dvd that's cheap so sure yeah sure, sure is cheap um, yeah what do you think I, about I, this I, I guess uh, if, if your if your customer is mostly the the general public, I don't see anything wrong with with trying to trying to promote your services in that way. And what's nice about the Groupon idea is that that you do have a minimum. It's not like you're putting it out there and you're only going to get you know five or six people at, at whatever price, where maybe it doesn't make any sense. Um, but you know, for for you know someone in my kind of business, you know, I don't I don't really deal with the public so much. So it, it, and I wouldn't want to sort of devalue. Um, you know what other clients have already paid, and and sort of devalue some some of the work I do by putting out something at a, at a really cheap rate. I mean, I might do some sort of discount in the winter when things are slow. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's one possibility. But but I do find uh, the my clients that I've talked to who who get some of these really ridiculously low offers for the work of the kind of work that I do, they actually lose a lot of respect for some of the photographers that are that are offering such really low rates. And so I've I've been comforted, especially in this recession, to hear that you know it's great that you're not. Not dropping your rates or offering these ridiculous packages and things. Yeah, um, it's price perception, right? I mean, it's it's yeah, and the, yeah, I think so because um, I think there's a, there's a you know that's a whole other whole other um, 
thread we could certainly talk about. But um, in regard to images being stolen, I haven't had um, – I've had sort of what I might call, and it would be generous to say, some, some sort of unintentional um, misuse of images. Um, I don't think I've ever had anything completely stolen. Um in terms of you know that I've that I've seen at least, but I have had times where you know sometimes images get emailed around between like my client and maybe we're trying to get maybe the contractor uh, for a particular project to see if he wants to use the images. Um, in other words, buy into the shoot because we license it to each party. Uh, sometimes those images might get you know maybe just stolen off of the, the web gallery that I put up. Uh, by someone in the contractor's marketing department who didn't understand that they don't own the images, and so it might just be a sort of a misunderstanding. I don't think there's actually been a malicious, intentional misuse of, of things, at least not not to my knowledge. However, one one sort of funny story. I was once, you know, you know, how how often do you Google yourself? You always Google yourself when you're a photographer. You want to see your where where your photos show up. Yeah. So I should I, I Googled myself one day, and I said, well, okay, this is interesting. I found my name buried in a Google um, hit. But it wasn't my name. It wasn't my website. It wasn't my client's website. So I clicked on it. Turns out the very first website I had before I had the, the one I have now, um, which was a custom design HTML and Flash. Actually, it was a Flash website. Um, uh, somebody had stolen the entire website. All that changed the images, right? But um, stole you know the entire graphic design, the way the whole thing worked, um, and pretty much everything. So, uh, but what I guess he didn't do is he didn't scrub my name out of all the code. <laughs> So oh, man. <laughs> when, when people search for my name, they were still going to find this guy's website. And uh, myself and the web designer contacted him. He's in, I don't know, he's in Spain or somewhere. Um, we contacted him and said, hey, what's going on? <laughs> um, and he, he said that he didn't know about that and he was blaming his – he said that his web designer stole the site mm. and sold it to him or whatever. But anyway, in terms of things being stolen, that's really the only thing I can, I can think of at the moment. <laughs> wow. Sil, Sil, what about you? Start from the back. Um, have you ever had any of your images stolen? And, uh, you know, and what did you do about it? Um, you know, I've had some images that were used improperly. And as Jeffrey, as Jeffrey alluded, you know, oftentimes it's a matter of a client or another party to whatever you're photographing not understanding um, the rights that were licensed. I mean, frankly, unless you're a creator of intellectual property, unless you're a photographer, you don't understand the difference between intellectual property and real property and personal property. I mean, all these rights things. Every you know, every time I have a conversation with a client who's not used to dealing with the media, and I say, "Look, you need to understand that you are employing me to create something that you will be licensed to use. You don't own what I'm creating." And, you know, more often than not, that really ha- raises their hackles. And I have to, like, calm them down and explain them. And in, in Jeffrey's case, when it comes to architectural, a little bit of, of real estate work that I do, not architectural, even just real estate, I tell, you know, if it's an architect, it's like, look, how would you feel if your client just took your blueprints down to the blueprinter and had a duplicate set made and sold them out on eBay for a thousand bucks so that other people could get a complete set of plans and then they kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I've had anything stolen outright. I mean, certainly maybe it's a big world out there, but, um, you know, so most often it's, it's a matter of just getting in touch with somebody and saying, Hey, this is not an appropriate use. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, and but what, I will- what about the Groupon stuff? Am I going to see a Silarina Paso Robles Groupon offer coming through anytime <laughs> soon? <laughs> 
You know, um, I'd probably be, have to be like, you know, like a group of one to make it work in passerolas. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had never heard of Groupon before, but I happened to um, be checking out TweetDeck middle of the week and I saw the little um, nap news announcement that a tweet that was basically saying, you know, in real time, you can watch a photographer's meltdown. Yeah. So I literally, I was like, you know, I, I'm tending to find all these great ways to procrastinate. And so... I, I clicked over to the Groupon site and I was watching the comments come in. I checked over, clicked over to Dana Dawes site. And so I, I'm now actually, I have it up again. Um, and yeah, the images that were on this site midweek when this thing blew up are no longer the gateway images on her site. And when I looked and I clicked through to her portfolio, the images that are there, they're definitely not the same quality of the images that she was portraying. Now, she actually, as this was melting down, wrote, hey, this is not my doing. This is my web designers. It's always the poor web designers who yeah. uh, made the scapegoat. Mm. And I'm right. thinking, hey, wait a minute. You didn't recognize that those images were not images you created? I know. I'm like, come on. That's like the cops raiding your house and finding all kinds of stolen stuff. And you're like, hey, that's not mine. <laughs> I, I don't know how those jewels got in my bedroom. Those are not mine, officer. You know, come on. Yeah. So it and, and it's also fascinating to me because I, again, I've never heard of Groupon before. But some of the commenters said, "Look, you know, this model doesn't work because there is um, allegedly no way to limit how many people buy this deal." Um, it's like you've got to, I guess you've got to have a minimum number to make it work, but you cannot establish a maximum number oh. according oh. to one of the commenters. And so the problem here was now she's in, I want to say she's in Houston or Dallas, but she's in a relatively large metropolitan area. I still find it hard to believe that in like two or three hours time, 1200 people signed up for this deal. Um, yeah. if I mean, I, I don't doubt that images were used, um, inappropriately, but I really kind of doubt whether twelve hundred people bought into this deal in like two hours. Well, it so it's you I know guess, stranger no. things have happened. The internet is vast and wide. You know, you never. I, I guess, I guess. But anyway, it you know obviously this is a photographer who is um, incredibly hungry to get work and unfortunately willing to take the great work of other photographers and claim it to be her own. And the reality is. And looking at her portfolio, man, those customers would be gravely disappointed if they looked at the beautiful images that she threw up as being her own, beautiful baby shots and maternity shots and portraits, beautifully lit, beautifully composed. And then they came away with the stuff that she's showing now as her portfolio. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, you, no matter how much you paid, you, you'd want your money back. Yeah. Yeah. Even your $65. <laughs> Even Frederick's $65. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting story. We'll link to this. It goes much deeper than this, more than the, we're going to be able to go into on the show. But we'll link to all the controversy in the show notes for this post so you can uh, in, be entertained. You know, of course, the thread, I believe the thread on, Goop, on Groupon where, like you were saying, Syl, the, uh, the photographer was going down in flames. And, you know, it started off really really innocuous like oh wow this is great what a great deal and then as you scroll through it people started outing the photographer's work and you know she would chime in and say like you were you guys are saying um you know that was my web <laughs> my webmaster put those images up and it just it just unfolds as a chronology that is just really entertaining unfortunately entertaining you know at the at others 
cost, but it's a. Uh, it, it, from a photographer standpoint, it's a definitely a lesson in what not to do, you know, in terms of promoting yourself. Hey, and Frederick, to Groupon's credit, as this thing was beginning to unfold, moderators jumped in and said, hey, we're looking at it, we're looking at it. And then ultimately, like two hours later, they said, we're canceling this deal and we've refunded everybody's money. Yep. So to their credit, they they stepped in, I think, in, in real time, did the due diligence as quickly as they could, determined there was a problem, and at least protected the Groupon community. Um, what they do in the future with photographers uh, remains to be seen. But it could have been carpet cleaning. I mean... You know, if it's a carpet cleaning deal and all of a sudden the guy sells 1,200 household carpet cleaning jobs and each takes half a day, that's two years worth of work. Yeah. You know, so obviously Groupon has some issues regarding <laughs> services. How did Groupon or anyone know that the, the, the photos weren't hers? How did, how did that come up? Oh, because um, co- literally commenters on the Groupon site were providing hard links to the actual photographer's site. <laughs> So, you know, it was a random collection of images from several photographers. And one of them, frankly, as I recall, was a photographer. Um, It was a beautiful image of a newborn in mama or dada's hands and beautifully lit. And it was a photographer in Nova Scotia, I think in Halifax. Mm -hmm. And she literally chimed in and said, hey, I'm sure you thought that, you know, little old photographer in the back corner of Halifax would never find out that you used my image or my friend's image. I can't remember which one, but there were definitely were the links to the photographer's site. And, you know, once an inferno starts on the web between Twitter and instant messaging, um, it is a big world out there, but the word can spread incredibly fast. Like wildfire. And it's just, I think it's an example of how to destroy your brand in just a few clicks, you know? But here's the, here's the interesting thing. I don't think she destroyed her brand. Um, she certainly destroyed her reputation among the community of photographers. Yeah. But the reality is she is a small time, I would say very new photographer and the people that she's going after, um, probably don't know anything about this. That's true. That's true. And it's happening in one particular niche, but you know, in terms of her doing speeches on how to be a, a, a great photographer at Photoshop world or photo plus expo, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon, at least not under that name. You know? No. And, and, you know, and there's the thing I will predict here on TWIP that we will now use her name as a verb in, in the context of saying, don't do a Dana Dawes on that. Okay? <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's perfect. <laughs> I think you're correct. All right, guys, we are, God, the this, this show is flying by. This is awesome. So I'm going to skip through. There's a couple of other stories that I wanted to talk to in here. One is about the, uh, the civil rights photographer, um, Ernest Withers, who turned out to be an FBI informant. Um, so we are going to talk about that on next week's show, as well as uh, there's a related story to that. Um, and that's a long conversation, so I want to make sure we do it, we do it justice by talking to it um, at length. But we'll end the news on this last story, and it's about uh, an Egyptian newspaper that doctored a peace talk photo. So I'm looking at you. I'm sure you, I know you guys are looking at these shots right now. We'll link to these or even embed them or somehow in the show notes. But there, there's a shot of uh, President Obama and the Egyptian president walking to i guess give a press conference or something or other and president obama is leading this group of of uh of distinguished gentlemen um and the president of of egypt is trailing behind in the original photo and in in the altered photo we see that the president of egypt is leading the pack 
and and it's just been you know frankly you know this blatantly altered and and it's a it's kind of a hack job photoshop job to begin with so thought to you first jeffrey do do you think i mean this is not new i mean we've seen this you know there's been many Photoshop disasters like this going on. Uh, what do you think that the, that the state run newspaper that published this photo, were they in the right to sort of position their president um, in a better light than trailing behind? Cause in the, in the original photo, he kind of looks like an assistant running up, you know, for these, these four really important guys. And he's kind of off to the side there. And in the yeah. final photo, he looks like he's leading the pack. So what, what, what do you <laughs> well, think about that? A couple of thoughts. Maybe, maybe it just came down to whoever their, their photographer was, was not, um, you know, d- d- didn't complete the assignment properly. Didn't get the right shot. So maybe that was the only, only image they had to work with, but not to defend it. I mean, anytime you doctor, you know, a news photojournalist story, certainly a political story. Um, that's that's getting into some deep water there. Uh, we're very used to it when we see, um, you know, celebrity uh, magazine covers that we know there's been a lot of Photoshop effort in, in a lot of those things. Uh, so, but I think I think it's really crossing the line. We were trying to trying to represent news, and just because it was, um, you know, this guy wasn't wasn't presented in, in a strong enough position in the photograph, I think that's, uh, you know, that's really crossing the line in, in what we should do. I mean, it used to be that you could. You could trust a photograph, you know. It was like it was something you bring into a courtroom and say, "Well, we have a photograph of this." And unfortunately, the the sort of viability of, of trust with with photography has gone out the window with Photoshop. You can't trust any photo you see anymore. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, totally. It's totally gone. Still, would yeah. you would you have uh, would you have doctored this photo like this? You think this is fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Remember that skydiving photo? Uh oh. <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> um, you know, it's never it's never fine to to retouch an image like this. And uh, you know, the question I think begs to be asked: Who didn't do his job? I mean, was it the Egyptians' president's job to walk at the front of the pack? I don't know, but um, no, it's never okay. I mean, obviously, if you're in journalism, which I'm not, um, but if you're in journalism, you've got to have a sense of credibility. And I know that the leading News agencies around the world have very strict guidelines about what um, their photojournalists can do. So, you know, the bottom line is, I mean, frankly, if you're going to doctor news photos, you need to spend at least a couple days at Photoshop World once or twice a year to learn how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of like, you know, what was it, the Palestinian rockets or or the Iranian rockets? It's that, you know, it's like. I don't know, man. It's it's totally it, bad. It's totally bad. Know, it's yeah. It's a hack job, and that's how. That's frankly how they got busted in the first place. Yeah. But no, nah, it's it's never right to doctor news photos. Yeah. And I really I, respect the the integrity um, of both shooters, photojournalists that I know, as well as news editors. I mean, it's a pretty strict set of ground rules that those guys all have to live by. Yeah. One one just quick aside to that. Uh, a, a friend of mine was shooting a, a you know an architectural story at a local college for the New York Times magazine. And in conversation after the photo shoot with the uh, editor, he's like, yeah, well, you know, we had to, we had to find a few students to put in the shot because, you know, it was like a quiet day or it was, maybe it was before school had started or whatever. And the editor got all bent out of shape because it wasn't, because those students weren't really there. You know, they weren't, that wasn't at the actual moment in time. Yeah. And he felt the photograph was manipulated. And I'm like, well, we do that all the time in architectural. We, we, you know, get people to be in the shot. You know, sort of, so, but, you know, from a news perspective, that was a real no-no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it was just a design story, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't any kind of a political story or, or even a news story, really. It was just a design story. Yeah. So they, they do a very high standards, and we have to admire that, and, and hopefully people will keep those standards high. 
All right. All right. Another quick nod to one of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog. And a couple of new features that we wanted to just highlight for you. They, uh, they, and I think we talked about this in the last show. They, they now have a Flickr photo display. Basically, you can embed a Flickr RSS feed into the website and have it display as either thumbnails or in a full slideshow. They've also got a Twitter widget, which will also put in a Twitter RSS, pull in a Twitter RSS feed and uh, display tweets on your website from uh, from any source and then or from inter- any Twitter source. And then the iPhone app, which they just launched, it allows you to log into your website and update it on the go, uh, approve and dismiss comments and all sorts of things. So it's uh, it's really really interesting. If you want to see some really cool examples of different sites that were created with Squarespace, just head over to squarespace.com forward slash examples, and you'll see all kinds of magical sites that you can create. Like we say on the show, Joseph Lenashki, one of the one of the TWIP regulars, uh, his site, actually both of his sites, Confessions of a Travel Junkie and ApertureExpert.com were both created in Squarespace, and he, uh, he never stops talking about it. So he's very, very pleased with using that engine to drive his kind of membership site, which is the Aperture Expert site, and his personal This Is Where I Am in the World Today site, which is the the uh, the Travel Junkie website. If you'd like a free trial of your own, you can head over to squarespace.com forward slash twip. You don't need a credit card. You can just try it out, build a really cool website, and if slash when you decide to purchase it, you'll get 10% off for life. Uh, when you enter the offer code TWIP, that's 10% off for life, not just off of that first subscription. This is off of your entire account in perpetuity. So just use that offer code TWIP. That's squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. All right, quickly, we're going we're gonna to take um, just a couple of questions here. Um, every week, our producers scour the This Week in Photo forums at thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum to find some really cool questions for us to answer on the show. And this first one, um, let's see, Sil, do you want to you want to take this one? It's go- it's about going migrating from half to full frame. Sure, sure. Um, that's a step I took a couple years ago. Now, like five years ago, but. Um, you know, the question is really asked. It's, uh, do you want me to read the question, Frederick? Yes, please. Okay, got it. This is all right. Um, from Sassamat wants to know, I've been looking into migrating from my Nikon half sensor to a full sensor and looking at the examples to see how quality would improve. I see no difference between the pixelation point on the half sensor, a D80, or a full sensor, a D700. They appear to be the same. How can this be? Well, let me tell you something. I don't know anything about a pixelation point on Canon cameras, let alone Nikon. But here's really what I think you've got to think about. In particular, it's depth of field. Because the larger your sensor, the shallower your depth of field is going to be. And um, frankly, I think these technical issues, pixelation points and those kind of things will go away. But the reality is that whole depth of field issue... Um, the bigger the sensor, the shallower the depth of field. If you're into bokeh in your images, again, um, and Jeffrey can speak to this. He knows this from going to medium format. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, back in the days when I was shooting 4x5 view camera work. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I don't care how many pixels I have as long as each and every one of them is good. And frankly, if I can, you know, camera manufacturers, they know this, but... They have to market by how many megapixels. That's marketing. 
um, engineers. I don't care. I don't want more megapixels. I just want better megapixels. So if you're thinking about going up to a full sensor, I think you need to look at it not necessarily in terms of incredibly small points. Um, and maybe I don't understand the question, but in reality for me, it's what can I do with a full sensor camera visually that I cannot do with a smaller sensor? And I know absolutely, particularly from my work with HDSLR motion, um, you know, pulling focus at a wide angle on a 5D Mark II is really, really hard because the depth of field is much shallower than, say, on the 7D, which has the APS-C sensor. Yeah. And Jeff, Jeffrey, do you have anything mm-hmm. to add to that? Yeah, I think um, I've, I've sometimes coached you know, clients and friends through camera selection. Uh, and one of those issues is, you know, really, do you want the, the full frame? Uh, or they ask me, what are the differences in full frame or, or crop sensor? And uh, the advice I give them typically comes down also to lens choice in terms of, you know, are they mostly a couple of clients who, who are looking, you know, to take, literally take, you know, photo, photographs of their kids playing sports. And I'm like, well, you're better off going with probably with a crop sensor and a longer lens because you get a little more length out of your lenses. Uh, the files are going to be a little bit smaller uh, versus someone who, who actually maybe a, a, a budding architectural photographer and looking to get into something. I say, well, you really want to go for a full frame camera uh, so that you can take full advantage of the wide angle lenses. So that's, that's sort of, that's a big part of the, of the, the answer to me is, is what, what is it you're shooting in terms of, you know, do you like to do lots of wide angle landscape stuff? Or are you doing mostly tight, tight, tighter, close stuff? And uh, that's, that's really where the, where it comes down to. Perfect. All right, guys, we're going to jump right into the picks of the week right now. This is where each of each guest can give a pick, their own personal pick. And this can be software, hardware, gear, workshop, whatever, as long as it's related to photography. And Jeffrey, since you're, mm-hmm. you are new to the show, I'm going to let you go first. What's your pick of the week? Sure. Well, this is something I would recommend uh, to anyone who has to take photographs um, outside and relies on the sun. And this is a, it's an iPhone app. And it's called Helios. It's uh, H-E-L-I-O-S. It's by a company called Chemical Wedding. And it's a wonderful app that uh, will, for any given, any given location pretty much on the planet, will, will tell you for any given date and time where the sun is going to be in terms of um, what they call the azimuth, which is, which is the angle around the compass point of where it's going to be and also the elevation it's going to be in the sky. So you can also help to uh, figure out uh, length of shadows and things like that. They also have this groovy little um, part of the where you can actually aim the phone, uh, at, like at the top of a building. If you're trying to figure out, well, when's the sun going to fall behind that building and it's going to throw a shadow on my subject building, you can literally aim the phone up at the top of the building and, and hit a button on it, and it'll tell you what angle uh, that is in the sky. And then you can look at the app and say, well, when it falls below 35 degrees, we're going to start to get the shadow, and that's going to be at 3:30 in the afternoon. Um, so it's extremely useful. I use it all the time when we're trying to plan a shoot uh, because you can also look at a Google map uh, right in the app and it will show you, uh, you know, if, if for me, if the building has been around long enough, it'll show up on a, on a satellite photo. If it's a brand new building, it may not show up because the satellite photo may not be up to date enough. But uh, use it literally every day when we're out shooting or, or planning a shoot. I went to scout a building um, just a couple days ago and trying to figure out what time we wanted to shoot this one shot and just pull out the iPhone, figure it out, a couple clicks, and I can know exactly what time. And, and also, you know, any time of year because the sun changes dramatically its position throughout the year. So as you're as you're standing on that sh- that spot, so you're you're mm-hmm. you're you're physically at the location that you're going to shoot. 
the so the the app is using the GPS technology in the iPhone, and you can kind of see where you should be facing and where the sun will be if you want. Say you want to shoot. Say I'm shooting a model, and I want to put her against a bra- uh, a barn, and I want the light to be you know in a certain position, or I want to shoot her when the light's in a certain position. Will it will it show me kind of give me an arrow of the sun is going to be over to the left, therefore the yep. shadows are going to cast to the right, kind of thing. Exactly, it works best when you're actually on the location because you can just hit um, the GPS. Um, button on in the app and just hold your finger on it and it will update the gps to where you're standing that's cool uh, and then you switch to the map and you get to the google map and uh you, you can then you know it, it'll typically show up with the current time and the current position of the sun mm-hmm. so if you can imagine the map and overlaid on on the map are parallel lines um that represent the rays of the sun overlaid on the map and then you can slide the time of day slider and you'll see how those those lines change throughout the day and also it gives you an indication of how high the sun is too that's wonderful. It's, uh, so it's 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 really indispensable. The way we used to do this, just to show how far things have come, you'd, you'd have to buy um, these uh, little discs. They're about you know six inches in diameter, and you'd buy them for for specific latitudes. So I had some for Philadelphia, some for other parts of the country. And this um, photographer I used to work with, he 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 turned me on to these things. And so you'd have to have your physical compass, and you'd have to sort of figure out well, it's about this time of year, and it's about that time of day, and you could get pretty close. But this app will give you exactly when the sun's going to turn the corner and start lighting, you know, the west side of the building. That's awesome. So, how much? Yeah. How much? How much is that app? It's the most expensive app I have, and it's thirty bucks. Oh, at, okay. least it, at least it was. Who knows? Maybe they lowered the price, but they keep updating it, and it's uh, they keep adding nice new features to it. And they make also, I think, another. I'm pretty sure it was them. I think they also make some sort of viewfinder app. I think, uh, which I guess is help more helpful for the, the cinematographers out there. And what what was the name of that app again? And what was the the manufacturer? It's called Helios. It's H E L I O S, and the company is Chemical Wedding. Perfect. All right. Not sure where they got their name from, but that's <laughs> <laughs> that an interesting wedding right there. Yeah. All right, Sil. What what's your pick of the week? Oh man, this if if I could, I am so happy to be on this week because. Photokina opens in Cologne, Germany this week. Mm-hmm. And if you are a gear geek, this is like Fashion Week if you're a designer or this is like any of the huge car shows. If you want to see what's coming up in the photography world in terms of gear, uh, Photokina. So you can go to Photokina, P-H-O-T-O-K-I-N-A hyphen Cologne, C-O-L-O-G-N-E dot com. Just Google Photokina. Um, literally, I think I'm the only blogger who's not on a plane to Germany right now or who's, who hasn't landed. Um, but it's a really exciting week. There have been, you know, Canon's announced stuff, Nikon's announced stuff, Sony's announced things. But there are always some big announcements during Photokina Week, and it only happens every two years. So, I don't know. As a gearhead, I just love Photokina Week. Very cool. All I right. have to second that. That's I'm really looking forward to that as well. And uh there should be some good announcements from Phase One, Alpa, the camera system I use. They've got some groovy new tools coming out. Now, Jeffrey, so, are you heading out there? I, I wish I could, but no, it's uh, not really worth the trip for me. But I was tuned in. You know, there's plenty of information on the web about it. Absolutely, and, that's what I'm know, doing. You know, I wish good. I, I wish I could go too, but there's that whole you know sustaining life thing that I have to do here in the United right, States. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day I'll go because I do love. Uh, do you guys uh, travel out to the uh, the Photo Expo in New York? Um, I I do from time to time. I'm not sure if I'm going to go next month though. I'm I may head out there. So. Yeah, no, I'll I'll be there because I'm doing a speed lighting demo in Manfrotto's booth on Thursday on opening day. So oh, wonderful. All right, great. I'll stop by. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love cool. it. It's always go. It's always fun to keep up with what's going on. 
All right, so my pick of the week um, is actually a trifecta. First is the Nikon D700, which was just released at $1,200. Finally, Nikon users have a uh, DSLR that can do some decent video. And if you'd like to see some of the, uh, the, the footage that comes out of this camera, Chase Jarvis, another guy that we've had on TWIP from time to time, he did a video. Actually, Nikon kicked him down a couple of D700s to play around with and test, and he did a blog post with an embedded video in there that actually shows the footage. So definitely head over there. We'll link to that in the show notes. And then uh, secondly... The uh, last week on last the TWIP 167, or I'm sorry, 166, um, the previous show to this one, I announced that we are going to be giving away a Canon or a Nikon mug that, you know, these are one of those mugs that looks like, look like a lens, one of the Canon or Nikon lenses. Um, amazing response on the blog so far. So if you, I'm, I'm not going to close it off yet. I think I'm going to wait another week. So if you want to enter that contest, all you have to do is go to thisweekinphoto.com and find TWIP166. Um, and you'll see that there's a bunch of comments on that post already. I think as, as of this recording, it's around 160 comments. So if you want to uh, participate in that, all you got to do is comment on that post, not this one, on 166, and uh, you'll automatically be entered to win. And the folks over that make those mugs are going to ship it directly to you. And I believe they ship internationally as well. So if you are uh, you know anywhere on the planet, just leave one little simple comment and you'll get a mug, likely, maybe. All right, and my um, my last pick is from a TWIP listener over at FadedAndBlurred.com. It's FadedAndBlurred.com. They're a TWIP listener, like I said, and they were listening to one of the episodes a while ago that I did with David Dushman or one of the interviews. And one of the things that I think it was David or me or one of us said was that photographers talk too much about gear as we have on this show, of course, admittedly. <laughs> but um, basically, he, was, we, he said that photographers should just shut up and shoot. You know, stop talking about gear. Stop talking about Nikon versus Canon, you know, Aperture versus Lightroom, whatever. Get out and take some photos. Um, so to that end, this w- one of the listeners created a uh, T-shirt that says Shut Up and Shoot. So I wanted to say thank you to them for creating that. And also to uh, direct listeners over there to go check it out and maybe buy one of them. So they're they're pretty cool. I have one of them here, and I'm going to wear it today, actually, as I'm doing lawn work. So it's uh, it's actually cool. So check that out, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. All right, guys, we are at the end of episode 167. Uh, Sil Arena, where can people find you if they're looking to see what you're up to online? Absolutely. They can see me at it's speedlighting.com. It's spelled Canon's way, S-P-E-E-D-L-I-T-I-N-G. Um, see me in Seattle, Austin, New York, Boston, or San Francisco also in person. I'll be doing Speedlighters intensives there. And on Twitter, it's my name, Syl, S-Y-L underscore or A-R-E-N-A, Syl Arena on Twitter. All right. Thanks a lot, Syl. And Jeffrey Tataro, where can people find you online? Uh, people can check out my website at jeffreytotaro.com. It's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-T-O-T-A-R-O.com. And um, that's like it's updated somewhat frequently. I uh, need to do some more updates on it. But also I wanted to mention um, I also do uh, once a year uh, a, a workshop through the Palm Beach Photographic Workshops down in, in Florida on architectural photography if anybody's interested. Typically it's around February or March. So if anyone's interested, just check out uh, workshop.org uh, and check on the calendar. 
Oh, perfect. I didn't know that. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And you are not on Twitter by design, right, Jeffrey? <laughs> I, yeah, I was, uh, <clears throat> we were joking before the show. I'm sort of uh, looking for the anti-social network. Um, <laughs> I just, uh, and it's most, mostly, uh, I'm just trying to put it out that not that other people don't, don't do well with it. I'm just trying to, to just come up with a way that, that I think is actually a benefit. I think when you have your, your business as your name, um, you know, something like Facebook, I'm not really convinced is great because, you know, people link to you and do different things you don't have control over necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but Twitter, I'm interested in because that that's certainly you know just quick and easy and and doesn't have a a lot of overhead in terms of uh, trying to keep it um, you know trying to keep it monitored or, or anything. Yeah. And also you know the, and the blog thing to like we spoke about just trying to think about what to do next with with that kind of thing. So I have my eyes open towards it. Just haven't uh, just haven't done anything with it yet. All right. Well, cool. Well, we'll keep an eye on you. Until then, what's your what's your blog again? JeffreyTotaro.com. Yeah. The the other website. Yep. JeffreyTotaro.com. Perfect. All right, and if you'd like to keep up with everything in the This Week in Photo universe, you can head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter account, and much more. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.